You're listening to Comedy Central. Sex in the City is back, guys. After 20 years, they've, they've started the revival, which is a weird name for a thing because it sounds like it was dead. Like, it sounds like all the actors were dead. And then they were like, come on, Sarah Jessica, come on, we need a few more seasons. Come on, don't leave me now. But yeah, they've done it and they're all back together. Um, it's just like, I don't know how I feel about revivals. Like part of me goes, this is great because it's nostalgia. But then part of me thinks like they're just tricking us because of nostalgia, do you know what I mean? Like we're gonna watch it just because it reminds us of something. It doesn't even have to be the real story. Like they could bring back Family Matters and it could be like space aliens. And we'd be like, well, there's no Urkel, but I'll, I'll watch just to see how it ends. <laughs> the show brings back memories. Pew, pew, pew. Did I do that? It's not the same. It's just not the same. Coming to you from the heart of Times Square in New York City, the only city in America, it's The Daily Show, Ears Edition. Tonight, The Real Hunger Games. Chef Jose Andres and Lou Lobel. This is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to The Daily Show. I'm Trevor Noah. Let's jump straight into today's headlines. We kick things off with a story out of Great Britain, the country where Yas Queen originated. When the COVID pandemic first swept the world in 2020, the UK was one of the countries that were hardest hit, and it responded with a national lockdown. All non-essential stores were closed, uh, public and private gatherings were banned, and Meghan and Harry were forced to socially distance 7,000 miles away. But now, we're learning that some of the people who imposed the lockdown weren't obeying it themselves. Boris Johnson is facing fierce criticism this morning. A leaked video shows senior Downing Street staff joking about a Christmas party thrown by the British Prime Minister during last year's Tier 3 COVID lockdown. This video shows aides rehearsing for a briefing four days after the alleged party. I've just seen reports on Twitter that there was a Downing Street Christmas party on Friday night. Do you recognize those reports? <laughs> I went home. <laughs> <laughs> hold on, hold on. Um, uh... uh... What's the answer? I don't know. I didn't was the party? It was cheese and wine. Just be clear, it's not. Is <laughs> cheese and wine all right? No. It was a business meeting. <laughs> I'm joking. This is recorded. This fictional party was a business meeting. <laughs> and it was not socially distanced. <laughs> the insensitive remarks were recorded just days after an alleged Christmas celebration at 10 Downing Street a year ago, a time when COVID restrictions in the country banned such gatherings, and while Britain was battling with overflowing hospitals and rising COVID deaths. In Parliament, the Prime Minister addressed the scandal. I was also furious to see that clip. I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged that there was no party and that and that no covid rules were broken and that is what i have been repeatedly assured we saw them practicing the lie and now you're going to tell us that we must believe the lie there was no party you guys have to believe the thing that we saw is a thing it is not a thing it is a thing everybody must believe me you know boris boris would be a lot more believable if it didn't look like someone just pulled him out of a mosh pit and guys, it's not, it's not just Boris, by the way. It feels like every month we catch another politician breaking their own COVID rules. Gavin Newsom went to that fancy restaurant. The mayor of Austin flew to Cabo. Andrew Cuomo kissed that bat. At the same time, I get why they broke COVID rules to have that party. I mean, people look forward 
all year long to the office Christmas party. It's the only chance you have to hook up with a coworker, have everyone in the office see it, and then pretend like it never happened. It's like a whole pass from HR. But the worst part is how they're on video joking about it. I mean, it's one thing to break your own rules. It's another thing to laugh about it. It's yet another thing to videotape it. It's like they're trying to win the dumbass triathlon. If they manage a scandal that badly, how did they handle the pandemic? What? Even worse? Total disaster. Oh, that makes sense. Huh. I do feel bad for them, you know, that this whole thing came out a year later. You know, because this scandal is happening now, but the video is from a year ago. Because I'm sure after the first six or eight months, they probably thought it it was over. You know, they probably thought they'd gotten away with it. It's almost like, imagine if you were at work, and then your eighth grade teacher walked in like, we finally tracked down whose gum that was under the desk, mister. You're getting two weeks detention. What? I'm 37. Do you want it to be three? But let's move on to a politician who never even had the chance to face calls for her resignation, Hillary Clinton. Five years after somehow losing an election to the world's worst person, Hillary is hoping that her failures can become a teachable moment for the rest of us. Hillary Clinton, for the first time, sharing the victory speech she hoped to deliver in the 2016 presidential election. Clinton revisiting the speech as part of a masterclass video being released today on the topic of resilience. I've never shared this with anybody. I've never read it out loud. My fellow Americans, today you sent a message to the whole world. Our values endure. Our democracy stands strong, and our motto remains, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. Oof, that's brutal. And the way she's sitting like that and and she's reading it to us, it's like the world's most depressing fairy tale. Once upon a time, an ogre crushed the dreams of a princess and nobody lived happily ever after the end. But yes, Hillary Clinton is giving a masterclass on resiliency that's now available everywhere, except in Wisconsin for some reason. And in it, in it, she reads the victory speech that she never got to deliver. And I I really love how she's like, I've never shared this speech with anybody before. It was too painful and you're paying me how much? Oh, well, I guess I could read a few pages. And you know, if this is a thing that we're allowed to do and someone pays you to do it, I, I also have speeches that I never got the chance to give. I've got it right here. I am so honored to be named the MVP of the NBA Finals. And just days after being awarded the Nobel Prize for world's coolest penis. And look, yeah, you you have to admit, it's a little weird to teach a masterclass on the biggest loss of your life. I mean, because there's plenty of things that Hillary could teach a masterclass on. She's kicked ass in so many things. It could be like the inner workings of Congress or international relations or... uh, Um, I don't want to say killing Jeffrey Epstein. Look, I'll say one thing. You'll never see Donald Trump doing this. He doesn't write backup speeches because whether he wins or loses, that dude gives the same speech. And my legal team completely destroyed the prosecution and I won the case. Totally won. What's that? Lights out? Okay, night, night, warden. See you guys manana. But let's move on to our top story. It's the holiday season right now. You know, that time of year where sexual harassment is okay if it happens under a parasitic plant. It's also the time of year where Americans gather together with their families 
to eat as much food as humanly possible. Yeah, between the Thanksgiving turkey and the Christmas goose and the New Year's deep-fried peacock, I don't know. Seems like every day is another excuse for a giant meal. I mean, for the whole month, people are basically playing Tetris with their stomach. If I can fit this turkey leg between these two yams, maybe I won't puke. Oh, I did it. Unfortunately, though, every year there are Americans who can't participate in this feeding frenzy because for them, food is hard to come by. And this year, there are more hungry people than usual. When COVID-19 swept across the U.S. in 2020, the need for emergency food assistance exploded, and that led experts to label hunger as the secondary pandemic. Compounding the issue, rising food prices caused by labor shortages, transportation costs, and supply chain disruptions. Consumer prices have jumped 6.2% since last year, a 30-year high, with the cost of groceries up 5.4% overall. Some items like beef and bacon surging by more than 20%. An average family of four paying $175 more for groceries per month than they paid last year. Feeding America says 42 million people, or one in eight, are going to bed hungry this year. Yeah, you hear that? That's a terrible, terrible stat. 42 million Americans are going to bed hungry. And nobody, nobody in America should be going to bed hungry. You, know, you should be going to bed, replaying all the conversations you had all day and overanalyzing if you said anything wrong. Plus, going to bed hungry takes all the fun out of your sex dreams. Because now a shirtless pizza guy shows up at your door and your mind is like, oh yeah, we're gonna eat that pizza. But this is actually a big problem in America. It's called food insecurity. Which I know sounds like when a watermelon wears its t-shirt in the swimming pool, but all it means is that people don't know where their next meal is coming from. And honestly, it makes no sense. It makes no sense for a country this rich to have this many hungry people. I mean, then again, it makes no sense for a country this rich to have such poor healthcare or such poor infrastructure or such... Actually, are you guys sure that America's rich? I'm just saying, is this like a lie that you said at a bar once and it kind of spun out of control? Either way, thanks to the pandemic, inflation, and supply chain issues, this problem is as bad now in America as it's been in decades. And it may not come as a surprise that the groups hit hardest by food insecurity are the ones that get hit hardest by basically every problem in America, minorities, the elderly, and the disabled. But it turns out this problem is so widespread that it's also hitting a group you might never expect, the troops. Near Norfolk Air Station, Oceana, you're looking at an American shame the need to feed military families who can't feed themselves. 160,000 military families fight hunger. Thank you for your service. Especially vulnerable junior enlisted ranks. Almost 30% of them need help. The people who serve our country and sacrifice every single day have to go to a food pantry to make sure that their families are fed. Among the causes, low wages, frequent moves, high unemployment among military spouses. How can they focus on the mission when your family can't even survive? Yeah, that's right. How can you fight a war if you're hungry? It's never a good sign for your military when everyone is trying to get transferred to Colonel Sanders' units. I mean, at, at a certain point, you realize the other side doesn't even need weapons to defeat you. They can just hold up a bag of chips. Come and join the Taliban, we have flaming hot. I mean, for real, think about it. America spends over $700 billion a year on the military and its soldiers are going hungry? At the very least, they could make some of those fighter jets edible. I mean, half of them can't even fly anywhere. You might as well deep fry them. And that's just, just how bad food insecurity has become in America. You know, 
Usually, when people need help finding a meal, they can turn to their local food bank, but it turns out, it turns out things have gotten so bad that food banks are facing the same problem as everyone else. Food banks across the nation are facing yet another crisis just before the holidays. Organizers say supply chain issues and inflation have led to a drop in donations. They say that forced food banks to buy more items on their own at higher prices. And of course, since the pandemic hit, more people have been leaning on them for help. We are basically competing with everyone else as a pantry, right? Supermarkets, um, you know, the household consumers. At El Pasoans fighting hunger, demand has quadrupled since the pandemic started. And now truckloads of food just aren't showing up to their desert community. So we are struggling every day to find adequate supply and I've never seen anything like this. One food bank director told MSNBC that her food bank usually has 5,000 turkeys in their freezer this time of year. This November, they had five. Damn, five turkeys for thousands of people. Even Jesus would be like, well, I mean, I do miracles, but this, come on, guys. But yes, the place that helps people who are struggling to get food is struggling to get food, which is a really bad sign. It's like a fire truck being on fire or a firefighter being stuck up a tree. Just go down the way you came up. Go down the way you went up. I can't, I'm scared. So right now in America, this is a real crisis. And one person helping to solve this crisis is Chef Jose Andres. His organization, the World Central Kitchen, is on the front lines fighting against food insecurity. And he joins us right now to talk about it. Chef Andres, welcome back to The Daily Show. Thank you for having me. Um, let's talk about this issue. It seems like such a paradox. And, and honestly, I think for many people, their minds don't seem to grasp like, not what the problem is, but how there can be a problem in America. How is it that at least 10% of America's population is food insecure in a country where something like 40% of the food goes wasted? How is this possible? So, Trevor, this is the conundrum we're facing, not only in America, but around the world. Mm. The problem of hunger is real. What happened is we don't know people that are hungry, right? Because if you and I, we know them, the problem is fairly simple. We share with them what we have and the problem itself. So hunger is a problem that actually has a very simple solution. Let's put democracy, let's put our government, the institutions at the service of making sure that hunger is a problem of the past because yes, it's enough food to feed everybody. We need to make sure that food stops being the problem, but food actually becomes the solution of having, you know, a community, right, a society right, right. Yeah. that keeps looking forward to the future, one plate of food at a time. Now, have you, have you come across any specific models that work better than others? I mean, you know, you've been in disaster zones helping people get food everywhere from Puerto Rico to, to Texas. You know, you've been in situations where people don't have um, the infrastructure to get the food and so you have to find a way to build that. Or the, the, there are people who are just food insecure and they don't have the meals, but they do have the infrastructure. Is there, is there, a, is there a, a catch all that works or does each city and each place need to find something that's, that works for them? What, what, what is the solution from your perspective? Obviously, it's not one solution that just covers everything and everywhere. Every community will need its own response. But let me show you what we did with Wall Central Kitchen. In a moment that the entire restaurant uh, system was shutting down all across America, what we did at Wall Central Kitchen was very simple. If you need to uh, stop a fire, you see the firefighters. If you need to feed people, who you should be putting in charge of achieving this? Cooks, restaurants, how many 
tens of thousands of restaurants we don't have in America. In a moment that they were shut down, what Wall Street Drug Kitchen did was simple. Let's partner with them. We had more than 3,000 restaurants in our system. Wow. And let's, one restaurant at a time, be feeding their elderly homes, their homeless shelters, uh, their hospitals, uh, who whatever was in need of plate of food. What we did was keeping the system working. We put the money that people were giving, at, giving to us at the service of feeding uh, American people. We didn't only solve the problem, we kept the system working. The restaurants could keep employing their cooks, the restaurants could keep paying the rent, the restaurants could keep paying the farmers. What we did was, keeping the system wholly 360 degrees, right. not only feeding the hungry, but maintaining the economy up and running. When you look at, uh, at, at the challenges that people face, whether it's food deserts, you know, whether it's um, trying to find food banks that give people food that is actually good for them, that presents a different challenge. And I know that that's something that you're very passionate about. What can we do to improve those conditions for people so that they can eat something that can help them? Let's take a look at something so simple that does so much good, SNAPs. What people will know as food stamps. When a single mother, maybe with three, four children that is working outside home and has to feed their children, with food stamps, she gets the help she needs to make sure that puts food on the table as she can take care of education for their children, uh, the health issues that they may have, et cetera, et cetera. But take a look what happens. If we only give her money to buy food. And all of a sudden, in the community that woman lives, she has no supermarket to buy fresh foods. Mm. And she has to go 10, 20, 30 minutes away to another community that maybe is a richer community. If all of a sudden we make that the federal government supports the ending of food debtors in America, that woman will be able to buy locally with the same money of solving the problem of hunger, we are helping the economy to become more productive, creating jobs, helping that woman to live in a community that actually she's proud of. All of a sudden, we don't only end hunger, we don't only end food deserts, but we make one community at a time better. This is a way we need to be start thinking in smarter ways to end hunger. Not only use throwing money at the problem, right. but investing in smart solutions that make one community at the time better. I love that, I man. You're just showing how like the, the, the food chain impacts every single aspect of society. And if we figure that out, we can help uh, to try and impact more parts of society. Um, Chef Jose, thank you so much for joining me again on the show. Good luck with everything that you're doing. Um, you know, at the end of the show, we're gonna give people information on how they can help with your organization, which may end up helping them one day. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time. Trevor, thank you. Let's all think about building longer tables, not higher walls, and the world will be a better place. Thank you so much, Chef. Have a good one. All right, when we come back, we'll take a look back at everyone who ghosted us in 2021. You don't wanna miss it. Welcome back to The Daily Show. 2021 is almost over, and I think we can all agree that compared to last year, it has been a pretty perfect year. So for the rest of the month, we'll be remembering all of 2021's best moments in our year-end segment, a look back at 2021, the least bad year of the last two years. Tonight, Dulce Sloan looks back at all the exits of the year. Hello, friends. 2021 was a lot of things, but more than anything, it was the year of exits. 
everyone was exiting something. People were exiting their jobs. Deontay Wilder exited consciousness. Even Bill Cosby got out of jail. And that was an exit that nobody wanted. And you might have thought the most expensive exit of the year was Bill and Melinda Gates' divorce. But you're forgetting a much bigger separation that cost more money than Microsoft Boy could ever dream of. After nearly 20 years, the last U.S. troops have left Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. Obviously, the, the end of a chapter uh, for America's forever war. The total cost they've estimated is $2.261 trillion. Damn! $2.61 trillion? Ah! Oh, I hope America paid for that on a credit card. Because those points will come in handy when we're booking flights to the next country we invade. Does Iran take Chase Sapphire? I guess we'll find out. But yes, after 20 long years, the U.S. finally left Afghanistan. And you know it's really over because America didn't even accidentally leave a toothbrush behind so we'd have an excuse to go back. <laughs> Whoops, silly me. But maybe while I'm over, we can try some nation building again. <laughs> and while no breakup is ever easy, this one was handled especially poorly. Although not as poorly as my last breakup. You think Afghanistan was bad? You try telling me you want to see other people. You don't need to withdraw from my apartment. I'm throwing your ass out the window myself. Where was I? Oh, yes. While our troops were exiting Afghanistan, some of the richest Americans couldn't wait to exit America. And they were going to the normal rich people places like Monaco or Fiji or Jeffrey Epstein's Island. No, they were exiting the Earth's atmosphere. Billionaires in space. Richard Branson going where no billionaire has gone before. 24 hours from now, Jeff Bezos will be launching to the heavens. SpaceX senior director said the company actually saw an increase in inquiries from people who wanted to buy a private spacecraft. So clearly there are a lot of rich people out there, much richer than the rest of us. Well, first of all, this is relatable. After a year of lockdown, I was ready to blast into space too. And these billionaires don't even live next to an apartment with a poodle yapping all damn day. Just poop in the house, Mr. Sprinkles. Nobody cares. Your owners is nasty anyway. Still, can't get these rich dudes to calm down? I guess for these guys, you're not rich unless everyone knows you're rich. Humans, Martians, Cleons, them worms from doom, whatever the hell Chewbacca is, everybody. Now, what I don't understand is why their rockets keep going up and then landing back on Earth again. If you're gonna get the f out, get the f out. You keep coming and going. Listen, Earth's gonna start charging you a cover charge. And no, we're not giving you a wristband either. You're gonna have to pay every time you come back in. But not everyone's exit was voluntary. Take former President Donald Trump. No, I'm not talking about him getting kicked out of the White House. I'm talking about him getting kicked off of a place he cared about a lot more. Social media. Well, they did it. Donald Trump has officially been kicked off Twitter. In the wake of Wednesday's siege right here at the Capitol, the social media giant announced late Friday that Trump is now permanently suspended from the platform. A long list of social media sites have now either banned or restricted President Trump, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Spotify. Yeah! Ha-ha! Trump got booted from basically every social media site in January. And you know why which is kind of a shame because it deprived us of what might have been the funniest milk crate challenge of all time. I mean, he even got kicked off of Spotify. I know Trump did a lot of damage as president, but what could he have possibly done on Spotify? Were they scared to start a podcast? Because Lord knows we wouldn't want anyone on Spotify hyping up middle-aged white men with misinformation. 
While billionaires were exiting gravity and Trump was exiting Twitter, Americans were exiting their damn minds. I know nobody likes wearing masks and getting a shot, but some of y'all were embarrassing yourselves. This is tyranny and this is wrong. We don't stand up, it's only gonna get worse. You don't need a mask. I have a right to my pizza. You gave me one fucking warning. One warning. a mix between Mel Gibson and Braveheart and Mel Gibson after his arrest. And for what? Because the mask feels itchy on your shitty goatee? Come on, dude. I tell you who I feel bad for. Those poor flight attendants. How do you lose your damn mind to the point where you assault the person that's supposed to save you in a plane crash? I know if somebody got an attitude on my plane, I have no problem opening the door and letting the ass get sucked out. <laughs> you found the right one today. So there you have it. Those are the biggest exits of 2021. Now, if excuse me, I have to make an exit of my own. Gotta exit my apartment and find a new place. I'm done living next to Mr. Sprinkles. You win, you yapping ass dog. Ugh. So does anyone know of a one bedroom apartment where the neighbor is not a poodle? Two bedroom, three bedroom. I have money. I'm currently on TV. No. Racist. Thank you so much for that, Dulce. All right, when we come back, we'll be joined by the star of the new hit show, Foundation, Lou LaBelle. You don't want to miss it. Welcome back to The Daily Show. My guest tonight is actor Lou LaBelle. She's here to talk about her starring role in the new Apple TV Plus series, Foundation. And then all hell breaks <laughs> loose. Lou LaBelle, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Trevor. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, I'm happy to have you here because, you know, it's, it's, it's rare that you meet people, like, right at the beginning of what I believe will be, like, just an amazing career. You, you're not just a fantastic actor, but you're on a show that has just been renewed for a second season. Yes, Congratulations. thank you very much. Let's start with that. Foundation, the show. What did you know about it before you auditioned to be part of, like, this mega franchise that Apple is building now? I mean, I didn't know much about it. I told my dad when I got the audition that I had this audition for a sci-fi called Foundation, and he was like, oh, I love it. He had read all the books. He was like, you know, me and Asimov have the same PhD, da 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 And I think, actually, that's what got me my second audition, because I mentioned that in the first audition, and they were wow. like, we love that. And it worked, so thank you, Dad for that. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's so exciting. So I didn't know this before I started watching it, but I didn't know that the, the, the books that it's based on are actually the books that inspired Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, what I love is that your story is almost as interesting as your character's story, because I, I meet few people who I think are as much citizens of the world as you are. You are <laughs> Born in Spain, your, your father's Spanish. Yeah, I was right? born in Zimbabwe. Born in Zimbabwe, yeah. okay, lived in Spain. Mm -hmm. All right, so father's Spanish, mom is Zimbabwean. Zimbabwean. Right, mm -hmm. so you're born in Zimbabwe, live in to, Spain. Yeah. Then moved to South Africa. When I was eight. Okay, then you live in South Africa, then you moved to the UK. Yeah. Because, you know, the world, for those who don't know, Foundation is this, is this it's like this, future dystopian, but not dystopian world where everything is ending, but possibly beginning. And your character plays, you know, in many ways, like you said, your version of life. She's going to be everywhere. For sure. That must have tied in in a cool way. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. I uh, also like leaving home South Africa. Yes, exactly. To move to the UK to do this job. 
and to and to you know work really hard to try and do this, which I thought is something I wanted to do all my life, and mm -hmm. I feel very mm -hmm. grateful to be here. I mean, I'm sure that you have a similar you know experience. Like your career has taken off. I right. Mean, I remember like ten years ago. Sorry, I have to bring this up, but like you did a show in Peter Maritzburg where yes, I'm that's where I grew up. Uh huh. And I remember watching that and being like, and then watching your career like explode, and I was like, oh my goodness. Oh, thank you. That's so cool. Like thank you, you were really much. a role model, and it made me believe that I could do that coming from a place like South Africa. Oh wow! You know? Thank you and very much for that. Yeah. And Had I'm I known that, I that, could that you do were this. watching my career like that, I would have thought it was too much pressure, and I would have just failed on purpose <laughs> to get out from under the thing. But thank no, you for that. No, but it's true. But I think like people that come from where we come from, a country like South Africa, it kind of can seem a bit, you know, that you can't reach. The stars and reach yeah. everything yeah. else, and you know, I hope to be an inspiration for people as well as I you think, are. I think you are already, <laughs> genuinely, because that's what I love about like foundation and the stories. For it's sure. this world where it's like somebody who is told that they're in a small world and small can go on to become something so big. Exactly. You know, you, you're playing this huge role. I, I was fascinated by this though. Like, is it true that the audition process was like five days? Yeah. So I did like three rounds, and the last one was five days in Ireland in Limerick, which is a you know, Ireland is a very small little town. Right. Um, and it was six of us going out for the same role. And we all, they try to keep us apart, but we all kind of found each other. I mean, it's not very difficult in Limerick, because I mean, there was like a bunch of us brown girls. <laughs> and so we literally came out of the hotel and we'd get, go for breakfast and be like, you, you must be. You know, like the, yes, the yes. Spider-Man meme. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was amazing. It was, of course, we were all like kind of competing. But we found this like weird connection because we were all women of color in a situation which we don't usually find ourselves. Which is like in a sci-fi audition yeah, especially. Yeah, very often. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there were six of us and it was like the most incredible, like inspiring, you know, thing. And we would, like, we have a group chat. Wait, we, we, like you, you guys are still friends? We, yeah, we still text, yeah. And um, they're all brilliant actresses. And it was just like the most amazing experience. It was tough and harrowing, right? <laughs> don't get me wrong, but it was a cool environment, actually. Let's talk a little bit about that part of it, because you have women who are playing roles that were in the book, men, mm -hmm. and then obviously race almost becomes irrelevant in the casting of the people, yeah. which makes it more interesting. Was that refreshing for you to play a role where it was just like, oh, it's about you being a math genius Completely. who happens to be brown? Exactly, brown and a woman, right. which I don't think is very, you know, and it's amazing to be able to be this powerful, woman, young woman, in this world which is run by white men, you know, in that world. Right, right, right. <laughs> not this not, world. Not, not this world, <laughs> not of course. No, no, we're talking about the fictitious yeah, world. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so we, I, I, and it's amazing to be able to do that and show that there's power in, like, working things out with your brain. And right. not just, like, a physical, you know, fighting and stuff, which is still pretty cool, I think. Yeah. But yeah, so that was really great. What I wanted to know is how many people have noticed you playing a cameo <laughs> in the show? It is you, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm in the background of episode three. Yes. It's when Hugo like flies in and the kids are like, running past and they run past me. Right. They did a very good job of making me someone else because okay. I am okay. not Gail in that scene. Okay. But I was so desperate to be on that set because that set was like literally life-sized. You know, none of that was VFX. Like except for the ship coming yeah. in, it was all like real. So um, you just wanted to go I there. just wanted to be on that set and I begged <laughs> David Goya and Alex Graves and was like, please let me. And they did, which was amazing. And if you look very carefully, I like you that. can see me in the background. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you And for congratulations me. on all your success. Thank you.
All right, season one of Foundation is available right now on Apple TV+. We're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. Well, that's our show for tonight, but before we go, if you liked what you heard from Chef Jose Andres in the show tonight, then please consider supporting World Central Kitchen. In the last few years, they've helped communities around the world feed families in need, all while supporting thousands of local restaurants in the process. So if you wanna support this worthy cause, then please donate at the link below. Until next time, stay safe out there, get your vaccine, and remember, follow your dreams. Even if you fail, you can always teach a masterclass about it. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central, and stream full episodes anytime on Paramount+. Plus. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. 